This podcast provides a platform to discuss important questions and complex issues, challenge the status quo, and confront the boundaries of the establishment. I'm retired police chief Daniel Hahn. I went from being arrested at 16 to serving over 34 years in law enforcement. My goal is to keep you informed with news not being reported, voices not being heard, and the untold history of how we got here so that we can create a way forward. Well, uh, today on A Way Forward, I'd like to welcome uh, my guest, Melanie Dixon. I'm not going to give all of her background because I want her to do that, but I want to give the more uh, recent background so everyone knows who you are. Well, thank and you. And so uh, Melanie came to uh, the Los Rios District Folsom Lake College in 2014 as Dean of Student Services, again at Folsom Lake College, uh, coming from Portland State University, which is basically her home area, hometown. Mm -hmm. uh, she's also was promoted to Folsom Lake College's Vice President of Student Services. She's also led student service eff efforts at the district, the Los Rios district at the college level as interim vice president of innovation and success. Uh, she's been at Sac City College as interim vice president of student services and uh, also served as Los Rios associate vice chancellor of education services and student success. All a bunch of big words that people probably don't know all what that entails. And I actually got to know Melanie as she was president of Los Rios's largest college, American River College. And it was yes. really the reason why I came on as dean. Um, so welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much. Happy um, I think your, your story, your journey from a child in Oregon to uh, president of the largest college in one of the prominent community college districts in California is quite the story. So maybe share uh, yeah. growing up and, and the, some of the challenges and, and uh, things that probably made you strong, but probably were challenges that uh, I would say most college presidents don't have in their background. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, first, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here with you and your, your viewership. Um, you know, very interesting journey, I think, and I feel very fortunate to have ascended the places that I have. But to, to your point, um, it hasn't been without trauma, struggle, and, and challenge. Um, so grew up in Portland, Oregon, as you mentioned, born and raised there for the majority of my life. And um, for those that are familiar with Portland, Oregon, it is not the most diverse place in it's the world. Although uh, likes to describe themselves as the most progressive place in the world. So, you know, we could debate both of those uh, identity traits um, that Oregonians think they have. But um, what I will say is that much of my life was concentrated in about a 30 mile square radius uh, growing up. So um, I grew up um, and was born um, in North Portland. Um, and, and in the 70s was probably where most black people were concentrated in that particular area. Uh, think of things like the Columbia Village, um, which was uh, our version of the projects, very different from mm -hmm. the East Coast projects, but nonetheless, uh, uh, high poverty levels um, and, you know, a lot of struggle. So we didn't live in that particular area. My mom had a home, um, grew up with uh, two older brothers. Um, all two years apart, so, you know, uh, stair-step babies. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom grew up in rural Oregon in Grants Pass, so uh, very uh, rural, very low income, um, a lot of racial issues there, and we spent a lot of our summers there. So there was that exposure to some pretty um, drastic uh, 
experiences related to race, right? Being in that town as a, a biracial child, but black presenting, right? Um, to, to those residents. Um, and so give you that little dynamic to kind of understand the individual that was raising us in these particular environments, right? Comes from a very small town, small mentality. You know, Portland was their version of a big city life. Um, and so, um, Growing up there with a single parent that was working, um, went to the community college, right, to get a certificate. And that was her education and ultimately went into broadcasting, which for many that knows that work as a camera person, not the most highest wage job, right. but the hours are, are pretty unpredictable. And so my brothers raised me um, in many respects. And, you know, uh, I'm assuming many that have grown up and were raised by their siblings understand some of the <laughs> challenges that come there without supervision as a young child. So um, I would say that we grew up in a very tight knit community. Everybody in our neighborhood knew each other. Um, and so that was really great that we had adults on the block that would look out for us and all of that and call my mama at work if we weren't acting right. Mm -hmm. um, but there were a lot of things that occurred um, being unattended, right? And being raised by children. So I would say those were my younger years of being raised by children, understanding the world and navigating it through their lens. Um, and certainly um, a lot of loneliness, I think, in my childhood as the only girl um, and really had the responsibility to take on a lot of traditional roles. So the house was my responsibility mm -hmm. um, in my mother's absence. So that was my young childhood. And then as I entered into school, um, really you know, I was always for the underdog and it's, I didn't really see myself as the underdog in retrospect. Certainly I can see that, but, um, and, and that time period really went for the underdog, the person that was bullied, the outsider, that was just my propensity to do that. Um, and, and so that was my childhood experience of really, I think trying to mend or show people the care, the support, the security that I think that I felt that I lacked mm -hmm. as, as a younger child, just because other children were trying to play those roles. Um, that were, and it was insufficient. Um, and so I learned in school um, around relational things, not necessarily a lot of educational book smart stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, and as time went on in uh, my educational journey, um, my mom ended up making a move to what we would call um, – the other side, right? So it was Northeast Portland versus mm. North Portland. Um, and on that side, it was very much uh, a flourishing black community. There were small business owners, um, much different from the side that we lived on initially and in seeing, which was a mixed community, but the uh, it was much more around economic status on, on that side versus mm. racial status. Um, so we moved over to Northeast Portland and, and our backyard was, uh, we lived in a dead end um, and our backyard was Woodlawn Park and Woodlawn Park over the years became blood territory. And so my childhood experience uh, from middle school growing up was very much situated in blood territory. Woodlawns um, uh, was the, the name of the gang there. My brother got involved with it for a, a very short stint of time. Um, and so it just felt very unsafe over there, right? New environment very much affirmed my identity in many ways from a cultural representation, mm -hmm. um, but uh, was very scary uh, as it related to the violence and the things that were occurring there. So I essentially, at about the seventh to eighth grade, really kind of stopped going to school. 
um, kind of did my own thing, um, was out in the streets. My mom was working, um, uh, I would say, many times hanging with people that I shouldn't, uh, much of the time grown men. Um, as a young woman that I shouldn't have been with um, and being impressionable at that age. So very much my experience was riding in cars with grown men in places that I shouldn't be um, and, you know, trying to avoid the the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1992, 91, uh, two of my friends passed. So we went to a track meet, and one of my friends was murdered. And by this time, I was in high school meet? at the track meet. Oh, wow. Um, and he, he was murdered um, at the track meet. And, and so I was in high school at this point. And then another friend of mine um, was killed in a drive-by shooting. And so at that point, I really decided that, you know, schools weren't safe. And so by that period, I think I had gone to six different high schools. So I oh, started wow. out. Um, college president. It's College president. <laughs> Uh, went to uh, a high school called Madison that was further out, kind of what we called uh, uh, the more wider part of town, not affluent, but wider, trying to look for safety, wasn't there. Um, then went back to my neighborhood school, Jefferson High School, um, that was very close to my home. Uh, lasted about maybe six months there before I got into a fight and ultimately was put out of that school. Uh, my mom, uh, as a single mother scraping together dollars, just finally decided, let's try to put you in private school school and see if that's the solution so she put me in a catholic school saint mary's academy and it was in downtown portland um no i wasn't catholic so that's (laughs) one point that i thought was uh really important to, to establish but also wasn't very religious right that i've had exposure to religion but my family was not church going on a regular basis um and so it was very much a different place um certainly a lot of structure as it related to the religious practices and norms structure was not something that was my thing um, and and something that I was exposed to much. So I'm sure you could imagine I didn't last long mm-hmm. at, at, at that school. And my mom was like, I'm not also paying money for you not to right. be performing in right, right, business. Right. Yes. So I then ultimately went to Lincoln High School. And Lincoln High School is a high school of affluent individuals. So the West Hills is kind of the richer part of Portland. And many of the students there were, you know, children of attorneys, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So my mom's, uh, the broadcasting station, Channel 8 News, was right next door to my high school. Mm. So she worked right next door. She thought, wow, this is the way. I'll keep an eye on her. Um, I probably went to school less there uh, (laughs) because it was downtown and I could go to the mall. And there were tons of things you could kill time with. And so stayed away from that school, not because of, I think, the violence or the danger there, but more about it just being a culture that was so unfamiliar to me Um, and um, a community and an environment that I just, I I didn't subscribe to. Um, And so that was... Where we at? We got my third school, fourth school. Um, I left there, ended up going to a charter school, uh, uh, Portland Charter School, POIC, Mary Anderson. Um, and was college in the thought process for you at all? Never, at ever. Okay. Never, ever. I'm just trying to figure out how I can make them tell me that I don't need a high school diploma and I can uh. just be done already and start working. Um, so I went to this charter school. And charter schools um, sometimes depending on the ones you go to, can be all of the individuals that are doing all of the things that you were doing and maybe even more. And so that was the environment that I was in. And there were um, adults there that were inappropriate. Mm -hmm. So 
didn't last long at that particular individual school. And then ultimately went to Portland Community College, where my mom got her certificate and got my general education diploma. Um, and so that was how I completed my high school experience. And then I decided I'm a woman now. I got my diploma. I'm ready to go face the world. Um, as many in my community, you take odds and end jobs. Um, I ended up going to cosmetology school because barbering and, you know, um, uh, uh, cosmetology were really huge in my neighborhood, nails and hair. You know, that was really individuals that we seen affluent in our community. Those were the professions that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals that we seen that owned businesses in our community, those were the individuals. And so, you know, on some level, I guess I was thinking that this would be a way for me to be able to kind of get out um, and make a way for myself. Um, I went to beauty school and uh, completed it. Um, went and took my test, got my license, um, and then I practiced for about six months. Found out that I was pregnant with my daughter and st- never did and how nails. How old were you at this point? I was 21. Okay. At this so time. hadn't really gone to college for college Didn't do credits. college. Didn't do college at all yet. Um, just kind of moseying around and working and doing all of that. So, you know, children can become a motivator. And my daughter certainly was that for me, not as it related to education, but as it related to earning money mm-hmm. um, and and trying to protect her from the conditions and experiences that I had had. And I think many of us um, try to shelter our children from some of the shame or trauma sure. um, that we've had and, and, and try to make different choices. And most of the time it creates different kind of traumas, but we can talk so about that in another podcast. The, what was the thing that changed or the things that changed that switched you from this mindset sounds like your whole life up to this point yeah. of college is not in your mind yeah. to at some point, obviously college did get in your mind. Yeah. What, what made that change in you? So it's a great question. So um, one of the things that I got by nature of just where I lived was hustle. Right. So so I knew I had the gift to gab. Um, I was a hard worker because my mom showed me nothing else. She definitely showed me work ethic. Right. So I knew about how to work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I began to ascend in the workforce based on that, I ended up at uh, Walt Disney Online in Seattle, moved to Seattle, took my daughter there. She was two at the time, worked Walt Disney in the tech high tech industry, felt really important, made lots of money. Um, but when it became time to lay people off, I wasn't sexy on paper. I had a general education <laughs> diploma, right? Everybody else had engineering. Ah. You know, they were engineers. They had college careers. And so I left there. I went to Microsoft uh, for a very temporary job there trying to break in. Same thing occurred there. Didn't look good on paper. So I ended up going back to Portland. And my brother just said, you need to get back into school. My eldest brother. Because you were seeing you, you, in your mind, you were getting... Losing these jobs when other people weren't because you didn't have I didn't have the credentials. Yeah. And they were telling me that, you know, here's your package. And it was a beautiful package when I walked away. But that money goes away and you have no way to keep it coming. So um, so they would tell me, you know, that ultimately, you know, it came down to you don't have a degree. Um, And so I started realizing that was the issue, came back, shared that with my family. My eldest brother, again, who was like my father figure, um, said, you just need to get back to school. And what I found out about school and what took me back to college wasn't necessarily necessarily a statement per se it was I could get financial aid Mm. that was my bridge for me and my daughter until I figured out what my next move was and did you start at the community college level I started at the community Uh college and I went right back to the one that my mom had her certificate at the one that I went to my preschool preschool experience at at the little child care centers I was there um so I went back to that same school where I got my GED all of it happened there. I want to go back farther but before I do that why did you go to the community college as opposed to straight into Portland State or a 
or a state college? Yeah, well, one, I didn't have an academic identity and didn't see myself as an academic, so okay. that was one. Um, two, this community college, Portland Community College, Cascade Campus, was a part of my lived experience. My okay. mom was there. She took me there. I was on the campus. It felt familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's what took me back there. Um, and so when I went and registered and found out I could get financial aid, that was the impetus. I learned along the way that to keep financial aid, you actually got to perform. And so that's what forced me, quite <laughs> to frankly, perform. to be so a decent student. So you had it in you. Yes. You just hadn't had the there right motivation. There was no motivation. pressure, yeah. yeah. And so I found out that I was a really good student. And then I started having instructors, faculty members tell me, you know, you really should continue on. You know, you should continue to so pursue your education. that motivation also helped you, the actual yeah, it professors or stuff. Yeah, yeah, it affirmed that, okay, I am in the right place at this imposter I can do syndrome. This. Yeah, may not be as accurate as it feels. Um, and, you know, then you start seeing the grades and you're like, okay, I'm decent at this right, um right. and and so that was really the impetus financial aid and trying to come up with a, a plan to raise my daughter so as you know i'm a i i am a uh, i love history yes and you always do love history yes you but, do uh so i i think part of your story is very unique uh and in some ways sounds like my own story but you mentioned earlier a uh, uh, story about your maternal grandmother. Yes. And how your father, who's black, and your mother, who's white, actually met. Yes. I think that is a because Oregon, at one point, prohibited black people from coming within its borders yes. into the 1920s. Correct. And yet, your father was in Oregon. And tell real quick how what because I think that's part of who you are. I, I would guess. I don't know this for a fact, but. Part of the things that you believe, I have to imagine, started with this grandmother that yeah. did something that sounds probably somewhat unusual for that time and place. Very so unusual. Maybe tell the story of what your grandmother did yeah. that resulted in your mom and dad meeting. I appreciate that. You obviously, asking. without that, you wouldn't be here. Absolutely. A couple of folks wouldn't have been creative for sure. <laughs> um, yes, thank you for asking. Um, Letty Counts, she's from Australia. And um, her and my grandfather met in, in the war. Um, and so she was a nurse. He was in the army. That's how they met. They ultimately came this way. He was originally from Bishop, California. So oh, okay. Eastern Oregon is where they went and then ultimately ended up in Grants Pass. Grants Pass, as I told you, uh, a lot of racial history, um, uh, uh, negative towards black folks and people of color in general, um, very uh, supremacist culture. Um, and the state was very entrenched in that culture. This is where frankly. your grandparents lived. This is where my grandmother okay. lived. So um, you talked about the laws in the 20s around not being able to to come into the borders that then transitioned and evolved into sundown laws all of these yep. laws that we're really familiar with in our history around the globe um my grandmother had a farm and was reading the newspaper and read a newspaper around individuals black males primarily um that had come to the area to do some work on the roads and some of the construction projects um, as a part of job corps and she read that they were being forced to drive all the way from Salem or Oregon to Medford every day because of some of the laws where they couldn't stay in hotels along mm -hmm. the way and mm -hmm. that they wouldn't allow them to build camps or temporary encampments for them in their um, city boundaries, right? Um, and so my grandmother was really really stressed out by that. But this article was really about how they finally decided that it took too long. They were paying them too much money to come and drive all the way there. and Not enough work was getting done that they finally broke down and were going to allow them to build a camp in the Medford area to do the work. So my grandmother, having come all the way from Australia, been in a different country, not had her family 
um, and also uh, was separated from her father at a young age, had this very innate feeling around families should be together. They shouldn't be separated. And that she felt like these men needed at the very minimum to sit around a table with people that they could call their family and eat a good meal after working hard. Mm -hmm. So she reached out to Job Corps and just said, here's what I want to do. I want to offer this opportunity to your men to come over. We'll provide this many meals every night. You can rotate men in how you'd like to, but we'd like to provide that. Um, and so that's what happened. Which I guess this is the only household, farm, whatever that was doing this sort of thing. Yeah, and it obviously wasn't <laughs> highly thought of. I would imagine. Um, and that also made the papers um, at a later date. But my father ended up um, being one of those men. Um, and showed up at the table and ate dinner and built a relationship with my grandmother and ultimately with my mother. I don't think your grandma was expecting <laughs> yeah, that. I don't think she was inviting my father <laughs> and the other young men over for that reason, but certainly that was the outcome. My cousin is also the result. So my aunt met a young man in that in particular experience yeah. as well. Um, so I, I think it was a very pivotal moment for my grandmother to understand the disconnect for them men and not being around their family, her desire and, and sheer admiration for families to be right. together and creating that space. Um, and I think also being not entrenched in the culture of racism, right? She right. It was around her, but she wasn't even as familiar with it because... Well, she didn't have black residents there where they were talking about these instances occurring. So right. there weren't instances um, other than just not seeing it. <coughs> so with that being said, that um, that experience very much shaped my life and certainly shaped how my mother raised us. Yeah, I'd imagine that your mom grows up in that environment, then you grow up yeah. in that environment. And so that can't help but to rub off on you and yeah. be part of who you are. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, to the community college, uh, I was always impressed with how you felt or what you felt the community college's role yeah. is. And I have a feeling that you think it's somewhat different than the four-year like CSU kind of colleges, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. And, and I'll say some of the reasons why I think that is you often talked and we had meetings about providing housing for students at community college. Yeah. I'd never heard, I, that never crossed my mind that you, that there could be housing with community colleges. You, uh, talked and worked and implemented things for reentry for people coming out of years and years of custody. As a matter of fact, you actually hired one of the people I introduced you to yes. to work at the college and his parole agent could not believe that he was actually working and didn't believe that he was actually working for the community college. And I, I can't forget um, that day you met Rodney mm -hmm. uh, when we're leaving, we get off the elevators and you start talking about hiring him and actually paying him yeah. the way he looked at you. Uh, he he could not believe it. He could not believe that this college president was hiring him because I think, like you at one point, I think probably even to a certain extent to this day, Rodney doesn't, college and Rodney, I don't think he ever, and maybe nobody else did either, saw yeah. those two things together and here you are hiring him. Yeah. So I'm curious, just... Talk a little bit, and I have some follow-ups, but uh, what you think in your mind, if if you had your way and were able to accomplish a lot of things, yeah. what do you think the role of community colleges really should be and the role that they play in our communities and helping lift people up? Yeah, so you got me over here crying first and foremost. <laughs> um, Success. Rodney's an exceptional person. Um, so, you know, 
I shared that my mother graduated from the community college and I graduated in the places where I felt unsafe. That's the place I went back to. So I, I do have a very specific definition of what it is because the way it played out in my life and what it's cre afforded me, right? So that it really was the conduit for me to escape poverty. And so for me, the role of community colleges is really serving the community. It's a servant orientation organization, right? Um, and it's about what are the needs of the community by which that, that institution resides? And then how do you help close the gaps for the people that live Whatever in those, those might be. Whatever those may be. And, and that's a broad mission. Right. And and it comes it, it gets complicated when you start thinking about it in, in conjunction or in conflict sometimes with nonprofits. And, you know, it, it, that's conversation for another day. But for me, that is the role of the community college um, it, that we tout ourselves as a system and an organization that we serve everyone. We open our doors to everyone. Right. But we haven't really de defined what serving is. And so for me, serving is making sure that we create the conditions that people can come to a space and learn, that people can get credentials, that people can master content, that people can apply it out there in the workforce to change the trajectory of their lives and their families' lives economically. And so for me, the community college has already determined that it's for everybody. It's already determined that it's the economic engine, right, for uh, uh, labors in any city or any state that you're in. But what it hasn't acknowledged that in order to do that, then you also have to take the responsibility of the shortcomings of the state or the city by which you're residing um, as a state-funded institution, right? You become a part of that state fabric uh, mm -hmm. or that, um, um, that infrastructure. And so there's an obligation that you have there. What you don't get to do is generate the revenue from people without acknowledging, right, what revenue has been taken from those individuals, right? And so for me, I see it as a place that you actually level the playing field, so to speak. We talk about that in a lot of environments. Community college really is the tool for that. It really is a place where people should be able to show up however they are, recognize that they come with skills, talents, and gifts, mm -hmm. and that the institution identifies how they leverage them in a way that allows them to transform themselves in the way which they desire. Um, and so a lot of responsibility for organization, um, but it's also organizations that get a lot of money from taxpayers. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, many of those taxpayers are those students sitting in those classrooms or those individuals in those neighborhoods not receiving the service. So the question is, is how do their resources continue to work for them and benefit us as an environment or a community versus benefit some? Um, and, and we know that most students of color that go to college don't complete. So they acquire a lot of debt and they actually haven't completed anything to really change their economic standing. And that's problematic. So I feel like community colleges have obligations to make sure that we leave people better than when they came in our door. Right. And, and sometimes that's the case, uh, but not all the time. And with that same thought, like, seems pretty clear to me when I was working uh, there that the, um, the enrollment is down. And a lot of times I, I think People would like to credit that to COVID, but I think the numbers show that it was going down before COVID. Yes. So COVID obviously didn't help and yep. probably accelerated it, but it was already going down. Um, what do you think the reason for that is, specifically at the community college? Because a lot of the four-year colleges are way down. I, I've heard colleges talking about eliminating degree programs, departments, because the enrollment's not yeah. there anymore. But at the community college level... Um, why do you think enrollment, uh, outside of COVID, why do you think enrollment uh, has gone down? Yeah, well, I would say, one, we're not fulfilling our mission, right? So when you think about community colleges activity, and we'll talk specifically California community colleges, but 
similar trends across the nation, okay. right? Um, but when you think about community college uh, pre-COVID, right? So I'm thinking 2014, right? You can even go back to 2012 and the Student Success Act passed and some of the more transformational work in education began, right, okay. through that legislation. And so when I think about that, it, we've lost our mission. We began to focus on just the traditional student that was coming out of the high school. We forgot about everybody else. Mm. We forgot about the person that was incarcerated and being released um, and the importance to them in our community and making sure that they had mm -hmm. training and resources. We forgot about the single mother that didn't have the ability to go to school but still has the desire and still has the need from a fiscal and I, I think a... Um, uh, a personal development perspective to be able to have that opportunity, right? So we stopped tapping those individuals and saying that this door is open for you. We started talking about access just for high school students that were coming out. And, that, and when you think about that, the high school numbers have declined over the years. So obviously, if that's your only market, your market instantly declines. So there is that particular piece. Um, I think COVID had an element to do with it, but it is not the problem. Um, this decline has been happening for the last 10 years, certainly within the district that I was in. Um, and specifically the college that you referenced, American River College. Um, I think the other thing is we don't evolve with the time and understand the culture, right? So we expect students to come from wherever to show up at our doors and just kind of adapt to what it is that we want to offer versus us having a really clear understanding of what it is that they need, right? What it is that the market calls for in the area? What are the skills that our community has? How do we couple those things together right, in a very right. meaningful way? And we don't do that, right? Um, and so we become our own problem as it relates to enrollment by not being intentional, by not being strategic in our recruitment and practices, by not being inclusive as it relates to all groups having the opportunity to truly have access to our institution, i.e. those that are returning from the prison industrial complex mm -hmm. or those that have been an unemployed those that are disabled, those that may have cognitive disabilities, right? That our door is open for all of those, but we don't we don't tout those markets or tap those markets in the same way to create that opportunity for them. So I think we failed ourselves in many respects as it relates to our particular Do you enrollment. see it getting better anytime soon? Um, <laughs> you know, it's an interesting question because I think now that we have this trend in this online space, that we now have several generations. That I see a lot of people resisting. It, it, uh, it is. It is. There's resistance from traditionalists in education, right? Because I've um, heard we are an on-site college. We are and, not an online college. And that's I'm great. like, well, if your students aren't coming on site, then you're just on site, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? You're, just, you're right. not a college. You're just on site. I mean, and and I I think that there are some disciplines or skill sets that require hands-on. Sure, I sure. also believe, and and through my research, have learned and through my personal experience that many people that come from poverty backgrounds learn by doing. Right, that we come from a oral culture. Um, we do we learn by putting things together and trying to just figure it out. We don't necessarily necessarily learn through print culture, where I read about it and then I figure out how to apply it. It's not how our brains have been wired because it hasn't have been how our lived experiences right. have required us to survive. So I do believe that there is a role for in-person hands-on. The reality of it is, is that's not what the trends say. The trends say that even African-American students, who quite frankly are on the lowest poverty scale, um, if you look at national statistics, um, we would assume learn by doing would be just like, yes, that's why we go to cosmetology school. That way we mm -hmm. can become barbers, right? That's why we be, you know, open restaurants or get into these different industries that are all about kind of the, there's a labor element tied to it. Um, that's not the trend. You know, when we look at Calbright that has just been created shortly at the system office, they have a high number of African-American students taking classes online. 
right? Mm -hmm. There's a convenience with online. Sure. There's a flexibility with online. There's a identity associated with online when you think about millennials, right? I don't know another world, right? So you're trying to get me to adapt to a whole different culture of coming on ground and learning everything in this particular way when this is actually how I'm hardwired. So we have got to learn in the community college space how to be chew gum, uh, walk and chew gum, right? Mm -hmm. We got to learn how to do the brick and mortar and traditional for those that need it. We also have to understand how to get into the online space and perform and be able to provide good curriculum experience and pedagogical practices there. So what I would say is to your question, do I see us getting there? The, if we continue to be resistant to what needs to happen in the online space, we won't get there. And many community colleges, in my opinion, will close their doors because right. the demand won't the be there. Students will go away. Yeah, they're going to walk vote with their feet. Absolutely. And at some point, you have a legislature that isn't going to keep time pouring money into spaces that are serving too few students. Right? They're going right. to uh, you're going to fold into some things, or you're going to close your doors, and there's going right. to be other people that absorb. So I would say. We will have to get good in that space, and then we'll have to go back to our old roots of understanding that a lot of what drives what it is that we teach is what's happening in industry. And sure. right now, we like to teach just what we like to teach. And the reality of it is, is if that doesn't lead, right, to gainful employment for students, then that's wonderful. It was a great experience. They may always remember it, but it hasn't changed how they eat or they pay their bills or how they connect and serve as a citizen in our communities. So for me, those things have to be addressed in order for us to do the work of, of community college in the 21st century. I have to say, what you just said is why I loved you and why everybody at the college, I think, loved you um, because you're not scared to say what you think. Um, and I just always felt like it wasn't nimble enough, right? We're not providing all of what people are looking for, and that's why they're not here. Hopefully yeah. You're not offering what they're looking for. So last two questions, um, and, you, and you touched on some of this, I think. And I, I don't always realize how much outside of a traditional degree that community colleges provide, technical mm -hmm. training, certificates, yes. these sort of things. It, I was always blown away when I'd learn all the different things. I'm like, wow, I never knew. I was thinking, you know, criminal justice degree, business degree, those yeah. kind of things. Um, but, you know, we live in a time, and you touched on it a minute ago, we live in a time that um, right now is pretty divisive. Um, we have social justice movements yeah. over the last couple of years that have reignited and turned into protests, sometimes very volatile and destructive. Um, over people's frustration, uh, not and you know on the outset you might think it's about law enforcement, but it's about a lot more than law enforcement. The equity and all these sort yes. of things. Crime is rising in just about every single major city in our country, which I don't really see an end in sight. Um, we have all these people that um, act like they have the solutions, talk about how much money they're putting forward to something, and the issues just get worse. Whether yeah. it's homelessness, drug issues now drug use and overdoses and crime and violent crime and shootings. Uh, every day you look on the news, there's some all-time high hit in something in regards to that. Yep. What role do you think education in general or more specifically the community college level can be part of that? And before you get to that, I think what you just described is, is what is needed is leadership, good leadership that can lead to those sort of things. Yeah. So, what leadership do you think the co the uh, education and community colleges specifically can play and play a role in changing the dynamic for so many people that are suffering or angry yeah. at all these different issues in our society? Yeah. 
I, I could go on this particular question. A couple of different ways came to mind for me. The first way that I'm going to go is, is I think education in particular has um, not been very truthful, right, about our outcomes, um, about data. So if you think about just kind of sharing data, right? Nobody wants to share their data. I don't want you to know my outcomes. I don't know what mm. you want you to know. But why? We're a public institution. That information is public. So why are we hoarding data? Why don't we want to exchange data if we think that'll be um, a, a better structure to better inform us about our practice, but also allow people to understand what all of their options are, right? So they can pick the right options for them. So one, I think we haven't been the best truth tellers, right? And so I think you need a leader that is a truth teller mm. that can be honest, right? That this is a work in progress, that educational institutions are evolving, that there are many um, factors that play into our ability to be good stewards of our, our servant to our, our servant responsibilities to our community. And so when I think about that, um, for me, I think we got to understand the factors that we control and we got to be really honest about that to our community, um, to our students, to our employees, right? And, and when I say community, I mean it not only the college community, but the community by which you're situated, right. right? I think that's really important. So a leader that can do that. I think how we can play a role in it is we can be honest about it, right? Um, what you'll hear most colleges say is, right, that Everybody those issues don't live here. Right. Oh, those issues are out there. Ah, you know, we don't we don't have those challenges. That is inaccurate. That anything that is out in the community is sure. on the community college campus, the four year campus, any organization that right. you're talking about that's there. And so I, I think one, we, we have to acknowledge that we have drug addicts and, and people that are addicted to drugs on our college campus. Right. We have individuals that are offenders on our college campus. We have individuals that are homeless on our college campus, individuals that are uh, food insecure on our college campus. So one, we have to just acknowledge who's here. Right. A lot of times we just like to teach to who we like to believe should be there, right? The high achieving student or the STEM student or, right? So community colleges need to offer more programs around these uh, addiction. They need to normalize and remove stigma around mental health and addiction and, and, and I think also around individuals that have been formerly incarcerated, right? That they're not individuals to fear. They aren't bad people, right? They are individuals that got caught up in sometimes an unjust system, mm -hmm. right? Um, and therefore, we should not exacerbate how they are being treated unjustly, right? That they not, should have the opportunity. They might be people that just made a mistake and learned from it, right? We all make and mistakes. we all make mistakes. Some and bigger some than of others. Us, <laughs> some bigger than others, and some caught and some not. Right, right, exactly. Right, because I could have been incarcerated yes. many, many times, right? Um, and 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 certainly have been there for long stretches of times for things that I've been involved in throughout my life. So it's a timing thing, right? Um, it's a luck of the draw, and they shouldn't have to be exposed to that inequity around that um, role of the dice, so to speak. So what I would say is you need leaders that are truth tellers. You need leaders to understand what are we trying to accomplish in the community college. I see people talk about equity in the community college trying to change all the world's inequities. No, your job in education is to change the inequities around education. Mm. Let somebody else change the inequities around these other things. Now, community colleges are situated differently, as we talked about. We do have individuals that are homeless. So in order for them to engage in the education, you have to address the housing. So it doesn't mean you don't have your toe in the housing. It just means that I'm not trying to address housing for the whole wide world. My students. So I'm trying to address it for the students here that are learn. here. Exactly. Yeah. And so we got to bring down what it is that we're responsible for so it's manageable. And then we got to hold ourselves accountable to be making progress on things. And I think accountability 
maybe is something that hasn't necessarily lived in the two years as much as it should, right? Data is right. a new concept in many respects over the last 10 to 15 years for community colleges, right? Not the same for four years, right? Slightly right. different um, as it relates to that. So there's some nuances that have allowed us to go on autopilot and not be intentional. We need to be intentional. So when I think about students coming in, I'm talking about race as a part of their orientation, right? Because you need to understand that this element is in the air, right? And you're seeing it on the news. I'm going to let you know how what we what we believe in mm -hmm. this particular community about that. Then you get to discuss, decide if you want to subscribe to that or not. Sure. Right. Uh, we're, we're all, all making stuff those on the decisions table. anyway. Yeah. I, I'm right. gonna put it all on the table, and then you get to just decide instead of just showing up and kind of, oops, this is what it wants. I never knew that, right? right? So you're talking about race. You're talking about things like bullying. You're talking about things like mental health. You're talking about uh, housing insecurity and food insecurity, and trying to normalize these things and recognizing where they derive from. It's not that individual that you're sitting there with that can't eat tonight's fault. Mm -hmm. Right. There are a lot of factors that have, has has led to that. So the person individually isn't to blame. Right. That as a community, we should all care that somebody else is eating. I should care that you have a roof over your head tonight. I should care that you can get to your child care and pick your kid up on time or get your kid to child care. Right. Whatever that looks like. And so I think it's about a community of care that you're trying to develop as a leader in the environment to understand that every member in that environment is important. Every member in that environment's success is contingent on somebody else's success. Right. Um, and so for me, that's important. And it's about seeing each other. It's about operating from a place of love. It's about operating from a place of empowerment. Um, and I think a lot of times what I've experienced with college leaders, it's about operating about how the public believes that I have accomplished my task. Right. And for me, you don't need the public to hear your statements or speeches about how you complete your task. <laughs> right. Your outcomes, your students experience, your employees experiences themselves. will speak for themselves, you know. And so for me, that's the kind of leader that you want that doesn't want the limelight, that isn't, you know, trying to right. chase titles, um, chase bags, although bags are good. Right. It's <laughs> what we all work for. <laughs> but but that can't be their sole motivation, that it has to be about the people that they're there to serve. And so for me, that's that's what I think a leader's role is in this very tumultuous and divisive time. Um, and I think that we have to hold our students accountable to being citizens that don't behave in ways that um, I, I think exacerbate inequities within our community. And so that would be things like uh, racial statements being put up around your campus, right? That you have to hold people accountable to behaving in those that ways. You've had to deal with that. I've personally. had to deal with that yes. very personally. Um, and, and it's important to deal with it. And that may be against Jews, blacks. It may even be against white people. It doesn't matter who it's against. Right. You have to take a stance and, and, and set some expectations about how people move in that particular space and see and engage with other people. Um, versus just coming on campus, I come to my class and I leave and I go on about my life. So hopefully so that's helpful. Along those same lines, I'd be very remiss to not ask you this, somebody with both your professional experience but also your personal experience. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just <sighs> um, addressed affirmative action in yeah. our country and, and basically did away with it. Now, California sort of did that a while ago. So you've operated in a system that is, I guess, in some regards, similar mm -hmm. um one what what are your thoughts on on uh i guess no need for infirm, affirmative action and probably more importantly what do you think if anything are the impacts that that it will have the decision yeah. the u.s supreme court made uh, it's distressing for me on on many fronts um you know when you have 
bell bottoms come back, right? Right. So bell bottoms were in one time and then they, they do come, come back. back. They always. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, whoa, those came back, right? <laughs> um, but when you have something like, you know, laws that are protections for people being reversed, that that's a different type of, you know, um, evolution of something. Um, and we should think about it that way, right? The political nature of this isn't lost on me. Um, and, you, you know, it's, it's kind of uh, expressing that, well, when people are left to their own devices, they'll do the right thing. And we have a history built on that not being the case. Um, and so for me, I think it highlights a pivotal point in our society and our communities around power um, and, and how we leverage our power to push back on forces um, and, and put the right people in political places to make the right decisions. I think we have fell kind of far from the wayside about how we've engaged in that particular regard. Um, thank God to black women, right, <laughs> that we would be in really bad trouble without black women, and I hope the world hear that particular part. Um, but, but the reality of it is it isn't enough because these things are occurring. And so I would say that it is a sheer sign in my mind um, that these experiences from George Floyd, this racial reckoning, um, our historical context and people being tired of hearing about that and tired of mm -hmm. hearing the excuses and I wasn't even born when those things happened, all of those things. Um, I would say that that's a very fearful thing for me because think about what happens in 2024. If we have a change in administration and this is the climate by which they get to move on, I think those things only get uh, uh, more aggressively um, 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 eroded from our system, right? We'll take more legislation back. We'll remove uh, uh, more uh, opportunities, I think, to right the wrongs. And I think that is not an acknowledgement, right? That affirmative action isn't about some great thing that we get that gives us the upper hand. It's about the acknowledgement of a system that's broken down. And so now what we're saying is, in my mind, by reversing those things, the system didn't break down. The system worked exactly how the system was supposed to work. What do you say to some, like in this case, some in the Asian community, not all, some in the Asian community that say, essentially it sounds like they're saying uh, because of affirmative action, there's been these limits or these higher requirements for an Asian student over a black student. And in theory, it feels like, at least on the news, people are saying that black students are taking spots from Asian students and they're both minorities and that's not fair. So you're giving your, 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 discriminating against one minority group for another minority. Isn't this the same argument we've lived with for years, right? It's the pitting people of, a, of color against each other, right, to normalize, right, the, the decisions that we're making that are absolutely rooted in supremacy, right? And so for me, that's that's what's happening. And and it's sad in, in my respect that a Asian uh, a brother or sister would think that somehow I'm I'm being given or or somebody from my community is being afforded a, a, a more opportunity than than their children because I would say show me and prove it to me because if we look at the data I would guarantee you that the data doesn't suggest that that's accurate when we look at prestigious institutions in particular which is where this legislation really derives right, right. from right when we look at that you look at the student participants there there are definitely much more Asian students being uh, afforded entry than black 
black students, right. quite frankly. And let's talk about the packages that they get when we go to the institutions. We haven't even talked about the resources that you get right. where there are disparities. So I would say that it makes it makes me sad that we would make an argument that we don't have data that suggests that that argument is real. Right. So I would say that I I, I debate the argument <laughs> that, that there is greater entry at that level. That's the first thing. The other thing that I would say is that we have got to quit if if eroding or ridding our society of supremacy is our interest, which we espouse in public places, no matter mm -hmm. what party we're on, we espouse it, right? <laughs> no matter where we come from. If that's our interest, we have got to stop playing the games as communities of colors, Asian, Latinos, Blacks, I don't care which community color you are. Um, we got to stop playing the game of fighting each other, right? That this isn't about a fight with or us. Even within those same communities, the it, black community it, it, fighting the black absolutely. community. Absolutely. We have got to stop doing that because to me, that is the very structure that allows this to keep living, breathing, and evolving generation after generation. If we'd say, actually, that's not accurate, and let's talk about the fact that we're saying we're arguing about white people letting in people of color irrespective of whether we're talking about Asian or black. Isn't that wrong? <laughs> right? Isn't that the real argument that we should be having? Mm. Not the fact that they get a couple more than us. Oh, please, right? It's a massa dance, right? Please, massa, let me get a couple more entries, right? Mm. I'm deserving. My, my students are smarter. My kids are smarter. Like, that's a ridiculous debate for me. The debate is, is why do we have a structure that allows certain people to deny how many people of color get to gain entry? Right. That's the real argument. So, um, I would say it makes me sad. Um, it is so uh, dated, right, that we've done this dance for so long, like when do we grow up and get smart and not continue to fall victim to it? Um, and so it, it, it makes me sad on that level, too, that we keep playing the game irrespective of our knowledge of the outcome of that game, which is we begin divided, we begin to become the focus and not focusing on the real system structures that need to be dismantled and re-envisioned um, and transformed in ways that work for every member of our society. So what... What do you think on the ground, or if you will, on college campuses? Yes. Uh, assuming nothing changes from this, uh, you know, other uh, entities within government do anything. Um, what do you think on the ground result of this is going to be? Do you think it will be less diversity on college campuses across our country? Or what What do you foresee? I mean, obviously, the decision was just handed down. Yeah. So it's hard to project too far. But. Like, what, what do you worry about yeah. as being the result on the ground with our actual children, yes. stu kids, uh, adults in our communities in regards to college? Yeah. Um, at community colleges, I don't have a lot of fear. Um, because community colleges, if they don't know anything, they go by the population size. Because it's about the number game, right? How many can I get? How many, how many, how many, right? Whereas universities have structured themselves where I only need this many. I don't even want all of those that want to come, right. right? Because that's how I maintain the prestige and all of the things I'm trying to maintain. So for community colleges, I'm less worried about it because we're going to take anybody that comes through the door because that means that there is a dollar associated with that particular student and it isn't a different dollar based on how you look and how you come, right? But at the community college level, we're hoping, I assume, that many of those students go on to a four-year college, right. right? That's why I want to make the distinction that the community college <laughs> you don't have that fear as much, right? So it'll feel business as usual, right? Okay. It's normal. It's going to continue to diversify. It's going to get more brown because populations are getting more brown. Okay. And, and that's where communities are situated. It is at the four-year that you're looking at it. So let's take it um, from within the four-year kind of category, uh, state, public, and privates. 
I think you'll see state and publics because of the way that their funding structures are, they'll still have diversity, right? Okay. That you are going to see universities that are public continue and ratchet up the stakes on our Latino Latina population. Because they're growing, they right, understand right, the dollar right. game, that is what it is. Um, and they also learned through COVID that with some disaster like that, you can't rely solely on international students. Mm. Right? That, right? So that game is played out. We've now learned that, woo, a natural disaster can, oh my goodness, yeah. change the game, right? So, so now that that knowledge is there, they got that awareness. We take it to privates. Yes. Now you're talking about a, a student Which is where of this happened at. It, it, it is. Where the impetus it, And it's really where the debate is in many respects. The concern is, is as you pull it back there, you begin to pull it across other different organization and structures too. And that's a different danger. But this danger is really at the privates. And what it means is for a student of color that wants to go and get a degree from a prestigious institution because they know the law firm is only going to take the five top institutions right. and that's who's going to get the job. That's 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 the danger, right? Is that we don't find ourselves in those so places. Upper class kind Absolutely. of jobs and professions will be less diverse because Absolutely. The, the feeding system for those are less diverse. Absolutely. And think about those jobs, right? We, we talked about the uh, case of an individual earlier that was potentially going to be denied an opportunity. Right. Um, and when you think about those particular cases, those are the deciding factors, right? Those are the individuals right. putting forward the legislation, right? So when you think about the structure, it just reinforms itself. And so sure. I would say that privates would become less diverse. Yeah. I, I absolutely see that as the fate. And then, you know, you start going more down to the southern end uh, of, of our globe, um, you're really going to see that there. I mean, I think you're seeing that there now. And I think affirmative action, even when it was in place, was sidestepped by many of those right. institutions. So I think that's where you get it. And it, it's, it's in those high prestige positions, mind you, where we are starting to push more students of color to STEM majors, mm -hmm. where they say there's a demand. But now there's going to be a demand. And how far can I go? Right. What, right. what are the opportunities that are going to be availed to me based on the status of the institutions by which this organization is uh, uh, bringing recruiting students from? So that's the danger from my perspective. Well, I have to say uh, all of that, I think, proves that we need leaders like you. Well, so thank you. So much. I am so thankful that you are you have returned from what the Pacific Northwest or whatever we want to call that there to the Sacramento community. And I can't wait to see what you will do in the future, well, especially you. around education and lifting our, our students up because you're one of the uh, few people that I've met in high positions of education that really almost has no walls or, or boundaries of what, uh, uh, how to help students and things like that. Yeah. You're willing to listen to anybody. So thank you very thank much. You. And I look forward to seeing what you will be doing. Thank you, I appreciate the invitation. One of the big purposes of A Way Forward is to hear different voices and different opinions because that is how we can make informed decisions ourselves. So if you are someone that would like to come on a way forward to express your opinion, go to chiefhan.com forward slash podcast. chiefhahn.com forward slash podcast.